0: You know, I talked to one of Bill's friends and in the book, and he said, you know, he doesn't hold grudges because grudges could be repaired. He holds death.
1: This is the Greg Cody show with Greg Cody. Pardon it. Here's your host, Greg Cody.
2: Hello, all. I'm Greg Cody. I'm the guy they named this podcast after and, um. I'm a little bit down today because I just came from a funeral. What happened is in South Florida sports, we're burying our football teams. And there was a service at Hard Rock Stadium today where the Dolphins lost to the Colts 27 to 17. And all hell's breaking loose because this may be true in your hometown where your hometown team sucks. But the Dolphins, off a 10-win season, were expected to be really, really good. And they're 1-3, and headed to 1-4. and and they don't know what's going on. It, you know, it seemed like a close game today. It was not. They really sucked. And that was a few days after UM, the Hurricanes also lost a huge home game. So all hell's breaking loose down here. We're having football funerals,
1: left, right, and center. Greg, what what type of funeral would you give a football team?
2: Oh man, well
1: we are we are all gathered here. You know, there were about sixty thousand. I mean, is people. it the traditional church funeral? Is it like? Uh in New Orleans where they do the second line parade, or is it more like a Viking funeral?
2: Um, I don't know what a Viking funeral is, and we might reserve that for Minnesota because they uh <laughs> they never win big either lately. But um uh it it's definitely not a um a second line funeral in New Orleans because those are parties. Yeah, you know, yeah. and and neither the hurricanes nor the dolphins down here deserve a, a party right now. People want to fire Manny Diaz. People wonder how good Tua a is. Um, They just lost to a winless team at home for the third straight loss. They're facing Tom Brady next in Tampa. It's crazy, which, by the way, I don't want to complain. But this coming weekend, um, I'm going to the Levitard show roast Saturday night, and I forgot to book flights to Tampa uh, the following morning. And so what's going to happen is I'm going to imbibe liberally and enjoy myself at the Levitard roast. And then basically get up three hours later and drive five hours, four and a half hours to Tampa in time to make a one o'clock game.
1: So that's going to be tough on Greg Cody. I tell you that. Are you going? Are you going to stay at the Hard Rock, or are you going to you going to go home first? I think I'm going to go home. <laughs> I think I'm going to go home. That
2: may be a bad idea. I should have booked a room at the at the HR, but I didn't even think of that either. I uh, I need a. I always say I need a personal secretary, and I really do because. You know, I'm just hopeless. I'm useless when it comes to taking care of my own business. You literally
1: have one in your pocket. Her name is Siri. Yeah, I don't know how to do that. (laughs) File that under least surprising things in in today's episode, folks.
2: Yeah, I just uh, I I, I don't know how to do that, let alone in my pocket. I mean, we have one of those things. It's not Siri. It's like Alexa or Alexis, whatever she's called.
1: Yeah, one of the Amazon uh, home things. Yeah. I don't know what they're called either.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I've got her in my kitchen and occasionally I'll ask her to play a song or to give me a recipe, but, uh, I don't know anything else. I'm I'm a Luddite. <laughs> what can I tell you? But, uh, no, it's a sad scene down here in, um, in football and, uh, but, uh, we don't have a sad podcast. We have a, a fun raucous
1: podcast for you today. And, uh, why is that? What's fun about this Yeti? Oh, I mean we we've got we we've got talk about our uh, high school years um, with some awkward dates. Yep. Seth Wickersham is going to be here to talk about his new book. Oh wow! But really, I mean, like, how about this? How excited are you? We we bring back Mount Gregmore.
2: Yeah, you're right. I forgot about that. I am
1: excited about the 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 vaunted return of Greg Moore. But another thing, HBO has sent us the uh, the final cut for episode 3 of Hard Knocks Greg's Lobos. So uh, actually um how's your h- how are the Lobos doing this week so far for for week 4? You know what, we're in it. Uh we're competing.
2: Uh I'm not declaring victory, but uh cuz we're recording this Sunday evening, but we have a chance uh for our third straight win. As as of we uh as of us speaking right now, uh, I am in a in embroiled in a Donnybrook with my brother, the notorious uncle dick and um as of this second we are projected to beat him 124 to 121 so it's much too close to uh, declare victory
1: now greg i've never played fantasy and everything still goes through monday night correct um no not everything i mean there's a chance that neither
2: you nor the team you're playing will have anybody competing monday night so there's a and and even sunday nights not always a given there's a chance that you know, some games are decided earlier Sunday, but for the most part, generally, you're going into Sunday night or perhaps Monday night to determine a winner. So we can't say yet who's going to win, but uh, we're optimistic, man. We're on a roll. We're headed for to, toward a third win. I'll tell you that.
1: What, uh, what What's the origin of the phrase Donnybrook? Do you know? I don't know, but it sure sounds like a guy's
2: name, doesn't it? I mean, <laughs> how many... <laughs> How many people on earth are named Donald Brooke
1: and they end up calling themselves Donnie. <laughs> we got us it, a Donnie Brooke. Yeah, that's right. So what, what exactly does it mean? Cause I've heard it, but I actually don't know.
2: You know, it's one of those phrases that I use occasionally without really knowing the <laughs> origin of it. Um, I just know that it means, uh, you know, like a, just like a real intense battle or like a, competitive thing where you don't know how it's going to turn out.
1: Did a young Greg Cody have this similar habit? Like, were you walking up to your mom and dad at six and were like, I'm in a real boner over here, mom.
2: (laughs) I don't know that I ever said the word boner in front of my mother. Uh, I I have to say that, but uh, I was the kind of kid who, uh, young in life, would use a word like Donnybrook or brouhaha. I was that kind of guy. I got a little Chris Whittingham in me. You know, I'm, uh, uh, I'm I enunciate uh i'm erudite when i'm in the mood to be
1: and um i'm not bragging that's just uh sort of one of my foibles and there's another word foible hey yeah i love a good foible i i use that word all the time i although i'm, I'm not sure if we're losing the audience with all this vocabulary talk yep enough talk about language
2: let's get into hard knocks greg's lobos episode three
1: Elated by consecutive victories, Greg surprises the Lobos by skipping the bar and opting for a more classic celebratory treat. My
2: Lobos, I've always been a big believer in celebrating a big win in the right way. After we won our second game in a row, this is what I envisioned for our team. And here we are at a long table. We all got bowls of ice cream and cones and sundaes in front of us. The good folks at Dairy Queen have really set us up. And this is the place to be to celebrate with a team party after a big win. I'm looking around right now. I'm I'm wondering why the hell Dairy Queen's got hot dogs on the menu. I have no idea. You got to know your role, Dairy Queen. Uh, This is an ice cream joint. And uh, Goddard... You've already had about four cones. Two of them I saw you inhale in one bite. Uh, Keep it soft on that. Uh, Zeke, I got you at the head of the table for a couple of reasons so I can see it. Number one, you're the MVL, man. You came through. 26 points on Monday night gave us that big win. MVL, Zeke, uh, you've also had a little problem with the LBs, so let's keep it to one scoop if you don't mind. Am I right, L-Jack? I know you're disciplined over there. You got, uh, and and Jamar Chase, my rookie, you didn't start the first game, and that was the best move I've made uh, as a head coach so far is is, uh, putting you in my flex spot. You've been terrific. And um, Jamar, I got to be honest with you. (laughs) I've never in my life seen anybody put ketchup on a Sunday before, but buddy... You can put sawdust on it for all I care if you keep scoring and crossing that goal line like you've been doing. Good work. And um, we just want to celebrate the way you should celebrate. This brings me back to my youth football, day youth football where my coach would take us to a team party at a dairy queen. And we got to come in full circle right now. This is the Lobo way. Enjoy yourselves, guys. You earned it.
1: Later, at Greg's Lobo's training facility, Greg grows concerned that the team's recent success may open the door for the corruptive seed of pride.
2: Gentlemen, we're going into this next game off two big wins in a row. And I know the psychology of sports better than anybody. And I'm going to tell you, we're poised right now if we're not careful to go into this game with a big head, a big team head, overconfidence, particularly because we look to kick the ass of our next opponent between you and I. That's just in this room. But listen, so we don't go into this game with a big head. I brought in a special guest today. It's Dexter Dinwiddie, who you may all know as the Guinness World Record holder for the smallest head. Now, Dexter knows what it's like to go through life even keeled, not worried about having a big head. And I want him to say a few words to you guys. Dexter, welcome. 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 Come on in. Come on over here. How you doing? Got trouble finding hats or how does that work? All right. Here's Dexter.
3: Guys, I've
2: gone through life never having to worry about having a big head. And you know what? Even though some people might make fun of me, I think it's the way to go because I never have to worry about overconfidence. I always have to worry about doing my job, doing my due diligence, not taking anything for granted. And you guys are in that position right now. Okay? I know you got helmets to hide it, but I want you to trot onto that field imagining that that helmet is rallying around on top of a small head like mine. Okay, guys? I've been a big fan of yours for a long time. I got all the faith in the world for you. Go get him today, small heads, small heads, small heads, small heads, small heads, small
3: heads, small heads, small heads, small heads, small heads, to we were uh, we played golf a couple of days ago. Me, you, Mike Ryan, Gatz. and fun. Somehow, now we can get to that. We can talk some golf if you want. But there was like a casual comment you made that I was like, I'm going to bring this up on the podcast. Oh no! Somehow, okay. the, somehow something prom came up. Something about prom night, and I was like, Dad, I, I, and it dawned on me that I don't think I'd ever asked you before. I was like, Dad, did you go to your prom? And you were like, it's a long story. So I was like, you know what? This seems like something that would be perfect to the podcast. So I want you to tell the, like, what is the long, and, and keep it tight. You know, we don't need it to be too long. But what happened? What What is the Greg Cody prom story?
2: Well, the Greg Cody prom story uh, in Reader's Digest version is that there was no prom. <laughs> because uh, Greg, Greg Cody in high school was um, pretty much antisocial <laughs> and didn't have a lot of friends. Oh, let alone a girlfriend. Uh, no, I had I had guy friends and and girlfriends, but not a girlfriend.
3: This has gotten sad. This has gotten sad really really quick. Did you spend prom night with Paul Radke? Seriously, did you play Stratomatic baseball on prom <laughs> night?
2: No, nothing. that, not that <laughs> I recall. I wasn't that pathetic. Although um, high school still was the Stratomatic era for me, so I was probably playing Stratomatic instead of uh, instead of going to a prom it's just hilarious so there's really no
3: story behind it you just had a sad non-existent prom
2: yes that's correct <laughs> i don't even remember where my prom was held like i don't know if it's uh, it was in way back in the day i think they held proms in like school gym gymnasiums i don't know if they still do that or not nowadays it's probably at some fancy club so there was no rejection no they're not at
3: clubs okay i don't know what you're talking about um okay what so there was no rejection involved with this so you didn't ask somebody and get rejected you just like no didn't partake at all no no the i f- didn't i'm like throwing stones here i actually had a sad prom experience i ended up getting a pity invite from like a, a friend a girl friend of mine like wasn't dating there was nothing like that it was just kind of like she noticed a couple weeks out like you don't have a date we were just like talking in class right she's like i'll go with you i'm like okay and it was just like yeah so like mine's pretty sad as well i actually did go you know right but it was kind of like a pity invite like we didn't dance like i like was just kind of like there it was awkward
2: i do remember that didn't we uh didn't we rent a limousine for you or was yeah that yeah like thing? all the all the
3: pre-pictures were at our house so it was like awkward she came over i gave her a corsage we took a picture together and then it was just like this is nothing. So, Yeti, I hope you had a better prom experience than my dad and I because this is not the Cody men have had some sad proms. We should recreate a prom. Let's recreate <laughs> a prom, Dad, so we mean, you can have a better experience.
1: <laughs> yeah, let's do that. I like that idea. <laughs> the Greg's boat sponsored prom. There you go. <laughs> the PFPI prom <laughs> and gala.com. Exactly. Um, i had fun on both i went i went junior and senior like year, did you go so you
3: went and you went with someone you were like, like a girlfriend like the, did you actually go with no someone? no
1: girlfriend okay. interested in but but no girlfriend so you went solo no i, I had dates okay. uh, my junior year i took one of the senior girls out which was awesome and uh Look at you. and then uh, my senior year i took one of the sophomore girls out i had crushes on both yeah. when i asked them but you know they didn't reciprocate but we still had a lot of fun yeah now there was a whole group of people who were going and they had a friend who didn't have a date and they tried to invite me to go to take her out I'm like I'm not going to take somebody out of pity yeah and uh and so I didn't and the rumor has is that group ended up in what one might call a uh, light orgy by the end of the night and Whoa. which was good I wasn't there because I would have been crying in the corner what? so you know. this I was
3: about to say you had a sad prompts experience as well but th- it things did turn late <laughs> in the night so that was good for you well
1: yeah I would have ended up crying in the corner it would have been it would have been horrific for me it's such a funny okay. visual
3: of a, an orgy taking place and yeti in the corner weeping <laughs> not a visual well, that i expected to have today but i'm, I'm glad that i have it
2: we, we can we can all agree that uh my prom my non-prom experience was by far the most Nom. pathetic of uh of all of them i was probably yes, home maybe uh, of all time yeah i was probably home watching all in the family with my parents on prom night if i remember Oof. correctly <laughs> why were
3: you so like insecure as like a kid and like it, keeping to yourself like why didn't you get out there make some friends
2: yeah when when i look back on it <clears throat> i was slow developing physically like when i graduated from high school i swear i i probably weighed 135 pounds like i was a small kid um i i grew a lot late like in college and everything so um i don't know i just uh when i look back on my youth, uh i do sort of regret not being more social you know i mean I wasn't antisocial. I remember going on a double date once with a, a, a guy and two twins. Actually, uh, now that now that I think about you marrying a twin, wow, I uh, went on a double date with a friend of mine and two twins. So it's not like I was always home playing Stratomatic, But generally, was it aw- was was the double date
3: awkward? Where like the guy and the other twin had like obvious chemistry, and you were just awkwardly
2: sitting with the other twin. <laughs> <laughs> well. well <laughs> That's so close to the truth. Um, I mean they're they're in the front seat like making out and everything and
1: oh man and, and you're like do girl. you so do, so do you
3: play Stratomatic? What's who's your who's your Stratomatic team?
2: Uh, <laughs> what do you think of yes <laughs> yeah that's right carly strumsky was my date for the senior prom <laughs> or um no it's uh you know enough about my pathetic life i did uh i did grow up to be a very sensitive person
1: group dates can be hard i i went on one and and this just must be a greg thing but i i went on with, with the two of my friends we had met these girls at like a youth conference at church and so we drove down to, to high point which is about an hour south of us and uh, they didn't have the third, but you know, for me, but the, they invited their friend Nancy to come over, and, and so we we're like, we'll all go to this Fourth of July celebration. It's out by a lake, the sun setting. Hope Floats was the movie of the summer, so Garth Brooks's um, "Oh to Make You Feel My Love" yeah. was the hit song of the summer. And why do uh, I have
3: this at a drive-in movie theater? I don't know. I don't know. It,
1: just... it was similar setting, but it was a little outdoor. It was at like a lakeside concert for the Fourth of July. There you go. And uh, the sun setting over the lake. And Nancy sees some friends from school and she gets up and leaves me. And uh, we didn't see her the rest of the night. And so I'm in the middle. My cousin Taylor's on one side. Our friend Justin's on another. They're both making out. And I'm just kind of staring straight up into the sky, you know, just like. Classic pretending Nancy. Pretending that I'm not there. Classic Yeah, Nancy. yeah. Thanks, are we still, Nancy. Are we still
3: making Nancy's? But no. Man, that seems like a name. <laughs> that seems like someone might. That seems like somebody's name that my dad dated in high school. Like I did not have Nancy. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Nancy. Nancy's were a thing.
1: But yeah, after after that experience, I was known as the wall because I was the wall in between the two people <laughs> making out while I was just sitting there, you know, lying back hey, and dreaming of people England. making out need a wall. So
3: you provided that <laughs> dad. I, we mentioned golf before. Before we get to Wickersham, it needs to be said on the record that you hold one out from like 130 yards. I did. On the 10th hole when we were playing golf. I have never done that. I'm a much better golfer than you. Right. I've never made, I think the most I've chipped in is maybe like 30 yards, 40 yards. But it was, and and we were playing match play and you guys were down on the hole. Yep. And you essentially needed to hole out to win the hole like you were 130 yards out I was walking up to the green to just get my ball because I'm like if he doesn't literally hold us out right we win the hole right and and I'm literally up by the hole he hits it and I'm like oh my god that looks good oh wow that's some good pace that can't go in there's no it's gonna hit it's gonna lip out right in the cup 130 yards (laughs) we end up losing the hole it was so far away that I I couldn't even see the putt drop saw my reaction
2: Or the shot, rather. Yeah. You
3: saw my reaction because I was up there. It was insane. Such a cool moment. Mike, Ryan, Stugatz were all like going crazy. Like, oh man, just that's, you're terrible at golf, but those (laughs) shots bring you back.
2: Was that your greatest shot ever? Oh, it has to be. I think that was the shot of my life. Yeah. Well, it's the best
3: result ever because you honestly didn't even hit it that great. It's one of those things where you'd rather be lucky than good. Right. You'd agree. (laughs) Like, you hit a sand shot that was actually probably better. Just in terms of like quality of shot. That's true. You know what I mean? Like with that shot, it's, it, you have to get lucky to make something from 130 yards out.
2: No, you're right. But it did feel really good. And I remember it was so far out and we needed to make it to have the hole. And I remember Stu got basically telling me, don't even bother. Yeah. Like, why are you <laughs> even taking this shot? And uh, as I'm taking the shot, he's saying that. And, and then it goes in. That was fantastic. I have to say, uh, I played pretty well until my fourth Bloody Mary. Oh, my uh, God. At that point, <laughs> it How, went downhill. Most,
3: peop, most people, because we started at, like, you know, 10 a.m. So, the, like, the booze, the, it was flowing a little early on Friday. And Greg stayed with the Bloody Mary. Usually, you start with the Bloody Mary. Then you work, get a little water, get some beer. But, like, my dad was just like, Bloody Mary, Bloody Mary, Bloody. And by the back nine, he just, he was seeing three
2: holes. Well, <laughs> uh, the 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 first three went down so easy. I shouldn't have had the fourth because I'm literally why we ended up losing. Yes. Because I was I was playing much better than Mike. Uh Stu and I were actually a really good team. Yes. Um but then the fourth bloody mary kicked it. I was pissed with four holes left, me and Mike
3: were down two holes. I never lose these best ball competitions with uh, when I'm playing with a bunch of, you know, not to Not to be an elitist, but like I am, like clearly the best golfer in the group, and my dad's pulling one, hitting shots in the hole from one thirty out of his ass, hitting sand shots I've never seen him hit before. He played so great on the back nine, right? But then, like he said, the bloody Marys kicked in, and then yeah, uh,
2: I was also (laughs) chipping pretty well, which I I know it's Taros. Yeah, no, that that round actually gave me hope. You know, I think I'm still getting better at my age. I'm getting better at golf. Eh, You're not. Um, (laughs) dad
3: you've been there's been you know talk in our group chats you're not happy with the amount of mount greg moors (laughs) lately let's go ahead before we get to seth wickersham get your damn greg mount greg Moore out of the way so you don't like you know boycott the podcast
2: okay here comes another mount greg Moore. and as the calendar flips from september to october today we bring you the mount greg Moore of songs with a month in the title how about that you seem excited about this segment today I'm happy oh I'm so excited I, we haven't done it in a while this is like my baby and finally I you get know what I'm excited
3: baby. I'm excited about this segment now. you just <laughs> got you go. me I hate this segment but I can't wait to hear which songs with months in the
2: title how about that? And by the way, it has to be a month. Example, May is the name of a month, but the great Rod Stewart song Maggie May refers to May as a name, not a month. So Ooh, that would not be included. Semantics. See. Okay. First, our honorable mention, Wake Me Up When September Ends by the former favorite band of either Christopher or Michael, I can never remember, Green Day. Michael. Are you sure? Yeah. I mean, I like Green Day, but they're never my favorite. Okay. Number five, September Morn by Neil Diamond. And yes, that's Mourn, not Mourning, for a lugubrious mournful song. I don't know that song. Sing it. September Morn. <laughs> All right. Eddie, do it- you know that song? I don't know that song. Okay. I literally could not sing anything except the two-word time. Brada dee da-da-dee. <laughs> yeah, but I thing. Number four, November Rain by Guns N' Roses, in which actual Rose does the near impossible by screaming a ballad. Number three, <laughs>
1: That's a good one. That takes a young Yeti back to sixth grade.
2: (laughs) Wow. Third person. (laughs) Number three, (laughs) April 29th, 1992 by Sublime. I loved Sublime for a time. That's the name of the song? Yeah, April 29th, 1992. Do they say that in the song at some point? Um,
3: it's like a weird lyric to get into a song. I think they do. Yeah, actually. All right. I think well, McCartney's they do. got a
1: whole song called 1985. So, I mean. Yeah, but that's at least just like one. Like, you know, this is like a whole day. Anyways, keep going.
2: Okay. By the way, <laughs> um, when I loved Sublime, it was the original Sublime with Bradney Noel, not the facsimile called Sublime with, rhyme, with Rome. <laughs> Sublime with rhyme. I want to make that very clear. Number two. <laughs> Number two, this is the one you've all been waiting for. September by Earth, Wind, and Fire. That's Featuring the one. lead singer and Greg Cody show alumni guest, Philip Bailey. Do you remember? Excellent. <laughs> yeah. All right. And now. The number one song with a month in the title.
3: I am so excited to hear number one. Like, look at me right now. Look at my face. Yeah. I could not be more excited to hear what number one
2: is. You exude excitement. <laughs> yeah.
3: Okay. I mean, if September is number two, I can only imagine how amazing number one is. And it is
2: the number one song with a month in the title. December 1963 by Frankie Valley and the Four Seasons. <laughs> oh, what a night. Okay. Late like okay. September.
3: September back in 63. Da, 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 oh, 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 what a night. night.
1: Oh, what a night. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How about that? And there you
2: have There's it. There's some excitement. Yeah. yeah. There you have it. Another acclaimed edition of Mount Gregmore. I missed that. That was fun. <laughs> How about that? <laughs>
3: Now, let's get to some more fun with Seth Wickersham.
2: Wicking it. We're uh, really pleased to be speaking with ESPN senior writer Seth Rickersham, who on October 12th next week has a, a new book coming out that everybody's heard of by now. It, it's called It's Better to Be Feared. And it's the story of of how would you describe it? It's the story of the dynasty and, and how it ended, really, right, with the Patriots.
0: Yeah, I mean, the best way I could describe it is I think that it I did the very best I could to um, get at what made Tom Brady and Bill Belichick so great at this profession that's in which greatness is inherently fleeting, right? I mean, it just, it never right. lasts long. And then what were the costs of that greatness? I mean, those were the things that I, I tried my best to, to write about and report, and, and that's the story I tried to tell right and and and
2: the the early uh indications are it's a it's a terrific book. I just had a copy uh hey. of it in the in the mail uh delivered yesterday so uh in in all truth, I haven't had a chance of, to fully read it yet and and really look forward to doing so uh comes out october twelfth um it's it's a fascinating trilogy you're writing about because it's not just Brady and Belichick who uh just played um uh sunday in their first uh meeting as rivals. But also, of course, the owner Robert Kraft is uh is a part of this whole trilogy as well. Um getting to know them over the years, I wonder if you would talk individually about all three and and what kind of people they are, because as public as they are, there's a certain um secretiveness to uh to each of them, I think. And and like for me on the outside looking in, Bill Belichick never seemed very likable to me. <laughs> And I wonder, is, is he a likable guy when you know him or is he the curmudgeon in private that he appears to be in public?
0: Yeah, he's both, right? They, they, they had that, that one line once where um, Dill, Bob, Bob Dylan was in a movie and, and he asked the director what to do and the director was like, well, just be yourself. And Dylan said, well, well which one? <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> the, the question is that, you know, the answer is that these guys are all those things. But I think that, let's just start with Robert Kraft. I mean, I think that Robert Kraft, the masterful thing that he did was keep this thing together and keep two very strong personalities able to work together and work at a very successful rate i think that robert crafts he's idealistic he's a he's a friend to the league and he's a he's a loyal owner to the league he has a ruthless streak um like like many owners do and you know, I think that, again, where his talents kind of came in, number one, he, he made probably the greatest trade in NFL history when he um, traded for Bill Belichick, but he kept these guys together. And that didn't mean that it didn't occasionally, you know, require some, some you know, managerial hard work. I have this, this one scene in the book that I write about in In Aspen in 2018, where he's at at a conference, at a business conference, and he's in the hotel lobby. And he says, You know, I hate leaving a place like this. You meet some of the most brilliant minds here, and I have to go to Detroit to be with the biggest effing a hole in my life, my head coach. Only he didn't use the word (laughs) effing, he didn't use the word a hole. Right. And then we'll move on to Bill Belichick. I, I think that with Bill Belichick, he's just, he's introverted, he's quirky, he's so smart. And so hardworking. And you know, one of the things I really try to get at in the book is just what's it like working with him and working for him? And what you know, with days that start at 4 30 and meetings where he, you know, that last for hours where he's checking for any loose screw. And, you know, the way that he became this kind of cultural presence in a way, um, both with his style of dress and with his mannerisms and with his work ethic. Um, And, you know, I think that Bill Belichick also has a ruthless streak and that's pretty well documented. And um, but I think at the end of the day, you know, he learned at an early age that early in his coaching career, that he needed to kind of kill what made him weak. And, you know, everybody's always wondering like, well, how can he, you know, make these ruthless moves all the time? Yes. They're in the best interest of the team, but you know, what's, what's, what's it worth if, if all of these relationships are, are broken, you know, and right. And you, you you've no one to kind of be around who, you know, you always have these elephants in the room and all these relationships. And, um, you know, I think that he became resolutely fixed in like, you know, the type of person he needed to be to be a successful head coach, learning from Paul Brown and learning from Bill Walsh and Bill Parcells and taking it to the nth degree. And then you have Tom Brady, who he's very earnest. He's got a big temper. That's one of the things I get at in there. And he's so proud of of his mental toughness. And One of the things I write about in the book, I try to show how that came to be. And there was a moment at Michigan when he was there and he was buried on the depth chart and didn't see a way out. And he met with his counselor, Greg Hardin. And he told Greg Harden that he had just told, told Lloyd Carr, the head coach, that he was going to transfer back to Cal. And his counselor, you know, started to laugh at him. <laughs> like he didn't say, oh, no, Tom, please don't go. He started to laugh. And he said, no one's going to miss you if you leave. You haven't done anything here anyway. Wow. You want to leave, go ahead. And I think that that really solidified with Brady is like, look, I want to like make it in the big leagues. I don't want to take the easier route. And that's part of what made him, you know, so mentally tough over the years uh, Seth I wonder um what are
2: an example or two of, of Brady's temper and and I wonder if you have ever been on the receiving end of it
0: no he mostly reserves it for games but you know he he used to play golf with his dad as a kid and when he was missing shots he would throw the clubs he would cuss he would swear at one point his dad sent him home you know it' was like this is not how we act but if you look at him now you, you know obviously he's 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 grown up and he's matured but you still see that rage in a weird way like it never goes away Last year when the Bucs were playing the the Bears on Thursday night football, I think they ended up in something like a fourth and 27. And he was so mad and he was cussing out his offensive line on the sideline. And I have, you know, the the exact words that he used in there. And um, it's probably not best for this show, but the readers can read it. But, you know, it's, it's interesting because it's like, Even though he's changed as a person and he's become more of a positive thinker and, you know, into defying age and everything, he still has that rage that he had as a kid when he was, you know, fighting for that legitimacy alongside his dad. I
2: would, um, I would pay for a video of Tom Brady petulantly throwing a club (laughs) into a lake after, uh, (laughs) after a duff shot. That would be fabulous. If anybody has that, please email it to me. Uh Uh, Seth Wickersham, new book coming out, uh, ESPN senior writer. The book is, it's. Better to be feared. The title of the book, does that come from a direct quote from anyone or is that, what is the genesis of of how you named the book?
0: You know, I, I think it was a thematic title. It didn't come out of a quote. It was just that if you look at their run, you know, there's some people who just want to be loved by the greater populace and especially Tom Brady and Bill Belichick, you know, that was never their thing. I think that, They enjoyed all the adulation. And then when Spygate hit in 2007, you know, they saw how quickly, you know, the public at large could turn on them and their accomplishments could be called into question. And so from that point on, they kind of didn't care if they ever came off as jerks or running up the score on people whatever i mean they wanted respect and they wanted to be feared and more than they wanted to be loved and that's you know that was the themes that i thought kind of made the title work right um
2: one of the fascinating um things about the way it ended is that it, it, it's in the book that Tom Brady wanted to say goodbye in person with Belichick, which you would figure after uh, such a long, successful re- relationship. But that Belichick basically said, geez, I'm, I'm not available. Let's do it by phone, uh, which is astonishing to me. Uh, Belichick this uh, last week uh, in his uh, Wednesday press conference sort of denied that. He said uh, it, it, that that was not what happened. I wonder if you could sort of uh, uh, underline what you wrote and and what what you think about Belichick denying it.
0: Well, sure. The, the anecdote really had nothing to do with Bill. I mean, it's well documented that they talked on the phone and that it was a good conversation. I, I never implied that Belichick was unavailable for any nefarious reasons or whatever. I just right. wrote that that night, you know, Brady said goodbye to Bill over the phone. And that night he told a very close confidant that you know he thought it was telling that they ended up speaking on the phone and, and not in person. Um, telling of the state of their relationship. So that was that was the genesis of it. And when Tom was asked about it, he did a great job of not denying it and also not giving anything more away. <laughs> right,
2: right. Um Belichick and, and Brady met uh Sunday as adversaries for the first time after winning six Super Bowls together. And um the, the book is so perfectly timed to to come out just after that uh that historic first meeting between the two of them. Um, What did you imagine looking, uh, looking at that first meeting, uh, the emotion of those two guys, you know, they're, they're both probably going to say after the fact that uh, it was just another game, but when obviously it wasn't Um, what knowing Belichick and Brady, as you do, what do you think that they brought into that first meeting in terms of, of just anger for each other uh wanting to beat each other in a way that uh that they probably don't accept in super bowls um what do you think the emotion was going in for those guys
0: well there's two levels to it right there's obviously the competitive emotion and that's undeniable you know these two for as different as they are they have a lot of things in common they have some shared traits that i really think like helped their relationship and their tenure together last as long as it did. And one of them I think is kind of interesting is that they're both real, they're optimists. Like they come at it at different angles, but, Nobody in NFL history has believed in the potential and the power of the next play and the next game like these two. And you see it, you know, playing out on international stages. Tom Brady down 28-3 to to the Falcons and finding a way to come back. All of the unbelievable goal line stands that Bill Belichick's defenses have had over the years. These two just refuse to concede an inch. And they always find a way to believe. So you have that and that competitive aura that they, that they both possess. And then you have the practicalness of Sunday's game. And that's that both men needed a win. (laughs) Both teams lost, you know, the week prior. And so from a practical level, both of these guys kind of needed a win.
2: Seth, we're a a Miami based podcast, as you probably know. And, uh, dolphin fans down here have, have always had a sort of what I'd call a hate, hate relationship with, uh, the (laughs) dynastic Patriots. And, uh, so I think the book's going to be a big seller down here. And when you look at, uh, at at the relationship that Belichick and Brady had toward the very end, what drove Brady out? Is it as simple as saying that uh, Belichick and Kraft simply would not commit to to having Brady as their quarterback several more years?
0: Yes, I do. I think that from the moment they beat the Falcons in the Super Bowl, so that's February of 2017, you know Brady felt like they had accomplished something unprecedented—five Super Bowls together. And because of that, you know, he should be treated a little bit differently than he already was. And he had made very clear his public desire to play until he was 45 years old. And really the last couple of years in New England, that was the, the main source of, of a lot of the problems, just the Patriots refused to commit to him that long. And it wasn't just Bill Belichick, even though Robert Kraft um, you know wanted brady to retire a patriot you know it was an organizational decision at the super bowl down in miami when the chiefs played the 49ers Kraft told another owner that you know we want tom but not until he's age 45. right well that said there are all these other things too and that's that after 20 years of you know gaining you know an astute becoming an astute football mind i think that tom brady wanted to be a little bit more than just a quarterback and you know, to have some influence on personnel, to have some influence on game planning. I mean, he knows more about offensive football than most head coaches in the NFL. Right. And, you know, to, to have a little bit more of an imprint around the organization, and, and that was just never going to happen in New England. He, he told Joe Montana at one point, you know, they ask my opinion, I give it, and then they ignore it. You're right. And, in Tampa, it's just much different. I mean, Alex Guerrero, his business partner and body coach, who Bill Belichick once banned from the team playing in the sideline and part of the building, has an office in the Tampa Bay Buccaneers facility, and he got a Super Bowl ring. Nice. So I think that tells you all you need to know about Tom Brady's influence around the Tampa Bay Buccaneers.
1: Wow. In the book, you reference Belichick's adaptability. Mm-hmm. Does that adaptability stay on the field? And is that one of the things that probably help lead to the demise as well?
0: I don't know. That's a great question. I mean, it, I think that Bill Belichick's ideology is his lack of ideology, and that's what makes him so special. You know, in in 2001 for instance, they played a 3-4 defense. And even though Bill Belichick had mostly run a 3-4 defense throughout his career, he wasn't playing a 3-4 because that was the ideology he was stuck in. It was because everybody else in the league was playing a 4-3 and he could get 3-4 players at a discount. (laughs) And so he's just incredibly adaptable. And he, you know, Alex Guerrero came out a couple of weeks ago and he said, you know, Bill didn't evolve to account for, you know, what Tom Brady had become. And, you know, I don't think that's quite fair. But at the end of the day, this was a letting Tom Brady leave turned out to be a stunningly poor personnel decision. And the two people, Robert Kraft and Bill Belichick, who should have known better than anybody than to underestimate Tom Brady did
1: just that. I want to know how. I listened to your interview with Pablo Torre on ESPN Daily, and he said this book is like over 500 pages, and he refer- specifically said there's no fat. How do you get this much access that no one else seems to be able to get?
0: Well, I've been doing this for a long time. You know, my one of my very first stories at ESPN Magazine um, was on Tom Brady. We were the same age, and and it was 2001, and at the time, you know, he didn't even know if he'd be finishing the season as a starter, and so. You know, we all know how that went, and so in a weird way, it's like their dominance. You know, I was, I had not exactly a front row seat because I wasn't covering every game, but you know, I got to know these guys over the course of those years. And if there's a if there's a journalistic lesson in it, it's never throw away a notebook. (laughs) (laughs) You never know when they might come in handy. But I was able to draw from those experiences. Um, you know, I'd, I'd rather have those moments with Tom Brady where I was with him in 01 02 03 04 05 at his parties at his house you know into you know 2015 you know these 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 moments along the way then sitting down with him for an hour for the book and trying to get you know 20 years of material out of him in one hour I, I felt like that like i just had a unique you know things that i had witnessed and things that i had been told and then you couple that with the fact that you do this for a long time you just get to know people around the league and you get to know people around the building and so You end up having both the Rolodex and the experience um, firsthand from these moments. And so I felt really good about my ability to just, you know, write the story that I tried to write as best I could.
1: We also would have accepted the answer. I'm just that damn good.
0: (laughs) You know, it's not that though. You know, it's just, it's that there's just a lot of it. One of the things you realize, and it's kind of a theme in the book is, is luck. You know, I mean, it takes some luck to be that good. And if Tom Brady had been drafted by the Arizona Cardinals, would he have been Tom effing Brady? I I don't think so. And if Bill Belichick had not picked Tom Brady, would he be Bill Belichick? Of course not. And so, you know, I think that there was just some luck along the way that I got, you know, back in 2001, I got assigned that Tom Brady piece and I met with him and, you know, it was the start of a relationship.
2: Uh, Seth, with, with that in mind, I was surprised that uh, none of the principals wanted to speak to you specifically for this book, that, that they're, they're quoted richly throughout the book, but it's from past interviews and such. Why is that? Because you had a good relationship with each of them. Um, why do you think it is that they preferred not to be involved in this book?
0: Well, I've, I've done some stories over the years that were controversial at the time and that they didn't necessarily like at the time, but proved to be accurate. Sure. And so I think as a journalist, you do your best to manage relationships. But as we've learned and as the book details, these guys are OK ending relationships. <laughs> <laughs> right. If it doesn't suit their need. You know, I talked to one of Bill's friends and in the book and he said, you know, he doesn't hold grudges because grudges could be repaired. He holds death. <laughs> <laughs> there is no chance. There's no chance of reconciliation.
2: (laughs) I like it. Yeah, there is a ruthless uh, quality to Belichick, that's for sure. And, And there's a dark side to the dynasty, obviously. Uh, I, I wonder, and, and I'm referring to the controversies, Spygate, Deflategate, uh, the idea that at least one or two teams uh, have been involved with having their practices videotaped uh, by the Patriots, uh, reportedly. Um, what is uh, When the obituary of, of this dynasty is written, how much weight do we need to give to those controversies? And is it is it fair in any way to say that to a degree the Patriots sort of cheated their way to what they accomplished?
0: Well, to be clear, there's been a lot of suspicion and in investigations about tape practices and it's never been proven, but they broke the rules for seven years with Spygate and they were videotaping signals from the sideline and they were doing it covertly and it was practiced and it was something that they, you know, did for years. And, you know, even though teams around the league knew about it, um, you know, and it ended up coming out in a weird way because... Eric Mangini goes to the Jets and he knew that they did this and he was sick of it. And he and Bill Belichick had been in, in a pissing match and still until uh, I'm sorry, since he had left New England. And so, you know, Eric Mangini's telling people in the building, he's pissing in my face with this. He tells the New England Patriots, I know you do this. Stop it. Cut it out. Right. And they didn't stop it. And he just felt like that Bill was just being a jerk. And it was the upper management of the Jets that blew the whistle on it. Eric never wanted it to become as big a deal as it did. That said, it became a huge deal. It started a senatorial investigation. And it was a huge black mark for the league and for the Patriots. And the way that the league handled it, destroying the tapes. You know, I have this scene in this book that uh, Don Van Nat and I reported on years ago, where the general counsel for the NFL, Jeff Pash, is in a conference room in Foxborough, Massachusetts. And he's literally stomping the videotapes to pieces and then leave them (laughs) on the floor for the Patriots general counsel to clean up. But, you know, the way that that happened, um, it it became a huge problem. And obviously the Patriots responded to that with another unprecedented run of of excellence, but there's always going to be people who think that, You know, this deserves a black mark. And I think that you can tell that it was a big deal because years later, when Tom Brady was investigated for um, deflating footballs or allegedly deflating footballs, a ridiculous investigation that became an international story, Bill Belichick initially kind of put it in Tom Brady's lap and was like, I don't I didn't know anything about this. Tom's going to have to speak to it. Right. And I think it was because he knew that he could not have another cheating scandal on his resume. It might keep him out of the Hall of Fame.
2: Well, yeah, and and I think that's worth exploring because when you write the life story of Bill Belichick, uh, how high up in that story do you have to mention? the controversies. And, and I ask you that as a journalist, I'm sort of conflicted about it. I mean, you think first of the success and the Super Bowls and the relentless winning over almost 20 year period, but the other stuff is real. It happened and it's
0: part of who he is and what he's accomplished and how much weight do we give that? It's a great question. I mean, the NFL never did a real investigation. They never tried to determine you know, really how long they were taping these signals and how many games it helped them in. They, they never really did it. And um, I have this scene in the book where Spygate breaks and Roger Goodell is trying to learn about Spygate as fast as he can to assess a punishment. And he calls Mike Shanahan, who was with the Denver Broncos, and all of the coaches that he had called were just piling on Belichick. You know, it was the, it was the height of piousness. Right. He calls Mike Shanahan and Mike Shanahan says, Roger, I wish I had thought to do this. And I'm disappointed in myself that I didn't. And I think that it really showed just how competitive and and you know where the the lines are and how they're able to be moved for the the very top at this incredibly competitive and ruthless profession. Um, right? How high you mentioned with Bill? I mean, outside of New England, it's probably going to get mentioned pretty high. In New England, I think it would get mentioned a little bit lower, but. You know look there's no question that it happened and there's also no question though that they responded with an almost an undefeated season and you know an 18-0 season that became 18-1 and with two minutes to go in the super bowl
2: yeah that's um it is amazing to think about that and uh it likewise brady leaves belichick and immediately wins the super bowl yeah uh, what do you what do you think that did to, to belichick who you know better than uh, just about anybody, uh, when 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 he sees Brady marching to a Super Bowl win while he's having his first losing season in about 150 years, how does uh, how does Belichick react to that privately? Do you think?
0: Well, I, I look. It was a black mark on both Bill Belichick and Robert Kraft that they let that happen. And you know, I think that Bill did some uncharacteristic things in 2020. You know, he's somebody who's never made excuses. But as they were losing, and as it was clear that, you know, this Patriots team was going to finally come back down to earth a little bit. I mean, they were still seven to nine. It wasn't like they went one in 15. Right. But when it was clear that this wasn't one of those special teams, he said publicly, look, we sold out. (laughs) And we won three Super Bowls and made it to another and made it to an AFC championship game. And, you know, we needed a year to kind of reset. And, you know, I thought that was a really telling comment. He also had said look, everything we did over the past 20 years was what was best for Tom Brady. And I thought that was just interesting because someone who never made excuses kind of sounded like he was making excuses, even though he said these aren't excuses. These are just facts.
2: If um, we're we're speaking with Seth Wickersham, whose new book, "It's Better to Be Feared," um, the story of the the Patriots dynasty, is coming out October twelfth. And Seth, we're going to let you go in a minute. Uh, but I'm wondering if, uh, and this is conjecture, I'm asking you for, but if if Kraft and Belichick can turn back the clock two or three years, uh, do they give Brady what he wanted, knowing that his performance was going to remain, you know, as high as ever into his mid forties?
0: Well, okay, I'll answer that in two hypothetical ways. I think number one is if they knew they were going to get another Super Bowl out of it, of course. You know, I mean, that's that's a bottom line. I mean, an eighth Super Bowl, are you kidding me? Or I'm sorry, a seventh Super Bowl for that group. Are you kidding me? But I think that Brady needed something new. And would they have won a Super Bowl? I don't know. You know, I mean, he he managed for a long time last year, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers were a, a good team, but they didn't look like a great one. And I have mentioned that steadfast belief that, that Brady and Belichick share. You saw that take over where Tom Brady basically took over the offense and the team in December and into January, and that's how they were able to, to come together and do it. I don't know if that magic would have happened in New England. I think that at the end of the day, he was kind of um, you know, ready to see if there was another way to do this, knowing that no one could ever take away what he did in New England, and he needed something new.
2: Is there anything um, funny in the book? Uh, because it, it's a pretty serious uh, book overall, but uh, what's what's the funny in
0: it? Well, I think there's a lot of funny things. I, and, and, you know, I, I like I said, I wrote about these guys as characters. And so there's always going to be funny moments as characters. But, like, you know, I've got, a, you know, a funny scene where some of the coaches rigged Belichick's computer so that as soon as he turned it on, it was screaming porn. And you could hear the <laughs> porn down the hallway. And Bill didn't know how to turn off his computer and so he's banging the keyboard and he's cussing and he's swearing and the coaches are just dying laughing. Finally, he gets under the desk and just unplugs the entire thing because he can't figure out a way to get it to turn off. And Tom Brady bringing Giselle's um, dog into the Patriots facility in a Louis Vuitton bag and he's like, can I hide the dog in, in someone's office because (laughs) <laughs> um, I, I can't let the guys see that I'm supposed to be taking care of Giselle's dog this day. And of course, everyone found out about it and they gave him a hard time about it. But, you know, you know I, I don't think that it's a studious read. I, I hopefully think that it's an entertaining one and has a lot of moments that will make people smile and a lot of moments that will make people think. Well, uh, Seth, I wish you all the luck in the world with a book.
2: It comes out October 12th. It's your first book. And I wonder, uh, like, what are your emotions as the book's about to drop? Uh, are you are you nervous? <laughs> like, like what,
0: what, how does it feel? Yeah, there's a little bit of a nervousness and a little bit of a relief, but it's mostly fun because I get to talk to legends like you.
2: <laughs> Seth, we will let you go on that note of you uh, lying and complimenting me like that. It's a beautiful uh, dismount. And uh, we
0: wish you all the luck in the world with a book. It was a real pleasure to be here with you guys. And I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Seth. Appreciate it.
2: We want to thank Seth Wickersham. That was good stuff. And uh, you're still holding.
3: You're literally holding the book. Look at you.
2: I I can't wait to read it. It's called. It's better to be feared. The story of the uh, Brady Belichick, Robert Kraft and the Patriots dynasty, senior ESPN writer, Seth Wickersham with us today. Thank you all, podcast family, for joining us. We appreciate you every week, and we'll see you next week. Thank you. Good night.
3: If I gave you the rest of your life to recreate that shot you made on the 10th hole, how long do you think you would be there before you made it
2: again? Uh, It would be the afterlife when I made that shot. I'm not going to live long enough to make another shot like that.
3: I'm just curious, like, if I literally just put a bucket of balls in front of you and you kept replenishing the bucket and you literally couldn't leave that spot and, like, I was like, do it again. Right. I'm wondering, like, how, like, do you think you would have gotten out of there before, like, nighttime came? Like, you had, like, another eight hours of just constantly hitting shots. Like, do you think you could have hit another one?
2: Maybe maybe I'd get lucky one more time. I don't know, (laughs) but I can tell you this. That was the length of a short par three. And in my lifetime, how many par threes have I played without a hole in one? So that's the answer. I tell you one thing. If you kept drinking
3: the Bloody Marys, you would never have even made it to nighttime.
2: You get that right. (laughs) Wow.